This evening we'll be in verses 14 through 18. John 1, 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God. Who is at the Father's side? He has made him known. Lord, we find such depths of riches, frankly, to be sometimes overwhelming. To think about how you would, in your infinite, perfectly delightful abode, together within yourself in perfect relationship with the Trinity, You have still seen fit to condescend and descend down to where we are at and take on human flesh so that you might save a people for your own self, a people who are the particular objects of your love and affection and mercy and grace. Lord, we sit here as recipients of that grace worshiping you with our mind and with our emotions, with our thoughts and with our heart. And we ask, Lord, that as we hear from your word, that you would stir up within us by means of your Holy Spirit, just a joyful passion for you. And that as we hear about you, Lord, that we would be moved more and more to worship, more and more in affection, more and more in the realization that we are so insignificant in your sight, in your light, in your glorious presence, and yet, Lord, you love us. What, what, what a great truth. Please lead and guide our thoughts. Lead and guide our hearts. May we walk out of these doors tonight knowing you better and loving you more than we did when we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in the Gospel of John here, and um, frankly, it's some deep waters. Uh, We're talking about here, verse 14 is a text, well, verse 14 through 18, actually the whole prologue here that we're going through, brings us to the understanding that God Almighty came down and became flesh. And that simple sentence has been the point of much controversy, much consternation, even within orthodoxy, for over a millennia. In fact, two millennia. We can go all the way back to the very earliest controversies within the church, and they center around Jesus. They center around how did God become flesh? 
Did God become flesh? Did man ascend to Godhood? Did man somehow get God within him for a minute? What is Jesus? How is Jesus? What does Jesus mean? Why is who he is so transformative in church history, in all of history, that before him, everything was different, and now after him, everything has been different? Ah, boy. That's a can of worms that I love to rip open. (laughs) I love to talk about Jesus and try to think these things through. We've been looking at how Jesus, as the Word, who was with God and was God, now we're looking at how he became man. How did God, who is a saity, we use these big words sometimes and they're important, but we need to define them too, right? A saity, God who is completely and totally and utterly self-existent within himself, he needs nothing for his continued existence and needed nothing for him to exist. Now those words are easy for me to say, but they're very hard to comprehend because everything in our lives revolves around something we require for us to continue to exist. Clothing, air, light, heat, Food, relationship, right? We need all of these things as human beings in order to exist. It is nearly impossible to conceive of a being who is not in need of any of those things, but yet that being exists or else nothing would exist. And that's God Almighty. And yet this being that is in and of himself being itself Requiring nothing, needing nothing, has yet seen fit to come down into his creation and to become a part of that creation, not by divesting himself of anything that he was, but rather taking on something that he did not possess, namely human qualities and characteristics. God is a simple being. A simple being doesn't mean he's super easy to figure out. His simplicity means that all of his attributes are completely contained within all of his other attributes. Let me give you an illustration. If Cecil gets crazy mad at me for some reason, he's not, we're good, we're tight. But if he gets crazy mad at me and picks up a machete and lobs off my hand, I'm still Patrick Mathers, right? The loss of a part of me does not suddenly make me a different being, right? So I am not simple in that category that God is. I'm complex. I'm made up of parts. And you can remove some of my parts and I still continue to be the being that I am. But not God and not Jesus Christ. In fact, his justice we might call a perfectly good and holy justice. His goodness is a holy, just goodness. His righteousness is merciful, graciously just. All of his attributes are contained in all of his other attributes. And we look at them sometimes, if we're going to study God, oftentimes we study his holiness or his love, right? People love the love, right? God is love, to quote that passage from 1 John chapter 3. Well, God is a lot more than that. 
And his love does not stand in distinction to, or I should say counter-distinction to, his justice or his holiness or his righteousness. But they are all contained within one another. And all that God is, is perfectly righteous and perfectly right in all that he is. So therefore, we don't define God as doing good. We define whatever God does as good. Do you see the distinction? God exists and whatever he does is good. Not good exists and God is pulling from an objective standard of goodness so that he can act appropriately. Otherwise, there's something greater than God. And there's not, thankfully. And this unique, difficult to comprehend, but yet absolutely necessary being, again, has seen fit to not divest himself of his simplicity, but come down and take upon himself something that would be complex. Jesus wept. That means there was part of him that was contained in his body, and yet in that moment there in John chapter 12, was shed and fell away from him. Not divesting himself of his being as Jesus Christ, but yet part of it left him. When he was nailed to the cross, or when he was flogged before his crucifixion, flesh was ripped from his body, so much so that he no longer from neck to torso had skin left on him, but was pumping blood directly out into the open air. There was a lot of Jesus that was lost, yet he never ceased to be Jesus. He never ceased to be God. And we can discern and understand these, but as we get into how this takes place, this is the deep end. And it's the deep end that, let's be perfectly frank, if I spent the next 30 years, if Lord willing I had 30 years of preaching left in me, and we just stuck with John chapter 1 verse 14, we would never, never, never exhaust. Ever. Which is really good news because we're talking about our Lord and Savior. We're talking about Jesus, our King, our Hero. And if our thoughts could get to the point of exhaustion with our Messiah and our Hero, He's kind of pathetic. He's kind of disappointing. If we could get to the point where we can understand and wrap our mind around this particular individual or the Godhead itself, then we are worshiping something that is pretty futile, pretty pedestrian. But we don't have that. We don't have that. We've got this, uh, words escape me, monumental The pinnacle of all beings. I don't know how to describe God. I wish I could describe him. I cannot. I can use biblical language because here's what we have here in front of us is we have God's self-revelation. Here's God saying, here's who I am. Here's what you need to know about me so that you can not only understand me, but you are now accountable to me. And Jesus Christ is the chiefest and greatest of that revelation of God himself. 
Before that, we had all of these wonderful, glorious types and shadows that were portray- leading, leading, leading our gaze up to the person of Jesus Christ. And now, from the position of him being crucified, risen from the dead, and ascended into heaven, now our eyes gaze heavenwards toward him in love, in joy, in admiration, in hope, in thankfulness, and gratitude for all that he is. Because God did not choose to stay lofty and lifted high, and he has every right to. He has no obligation to save anybody. He has no obligation to invade history and redeem you from your sins. Like I said, he is perfectly just. And sin is the rebellion against God himself and his self-revelation. If we have sinned, we have rebelled against God and his self-revelation. We understand justice from the perspective of the greater position of authority equals the greater position of crime against that authority. I am way more in trouble if I commit a crime against the President of the United States than I am against Joel. Right? Even if it's the exact same crime... I commit against Joel, I'm never going to be tried for treason against Joel. But I will against the head of state, you see. We understand that the greater the responsibility, the greater, therefore, my crime is against that responsibility if I sin against it. Well, how much the infinite God of the universe who created your very existence and you owe everything you are to and yet you live in rebellion against him. And I sin greatly against him. He owes me nothing. But the word became flesh. It literally means he pitched his tent. Thank goodness we're not a nomadic people anymore. I hate camping. I don't like to be dirty I like to take a shower. I don't want to pick dirt out of my food. I don't like the smell of smoke all night long. I, I, I do it, and I will continue to do it because there is an aspect of the outdoors that I love, and I love my wife, and she likes to camp. <laughs> but I don't like it, so I'm glad we don't have this nomadic existence. And a big reason is, is I don't want to live in a tent But for a lot of human history, most people did just that. Still, in some parts of the world, they do this. They go and they pitch their tent. And when they pitch their tent, they're indicating this is where I am dwelling for this period of time. And what we have here is we have God, the word, coming down, not to his abode, but to somewhere that isn't his specific abode and pitching his tent. Follow me? I know we can get out in the weeds here. Well, how did he come down? Was he not still there? That's for a later discussion in the book. But right now, what we're trying to get at is this word, this God, the eternal revelation of God himself chose and saw fit to come down and pitch his tent with humanity, a place he had not been dwelling, if you can call it that before, where he's omnipresent. Okay, I get that. 
I'm not denying his omnipresence. But he came in a unique and distinct way here to this earth as he took on human flesh. And the biblical language is he pitched his tent. And in pitching his tent, he dwelt among us. He became as much like human as he could possibly come, right? Ephesians, pardon me, Hebrews chapter 4 teaches us that he is our perfect high priest. And he could sympathize with us because he came and he experienced everything that people can experience, including temptations to sin. And he was tempted in the ways that we are and yet without sin, so that we can have a sympathetic high priest who is not in any way lost to what we are or what we experience, who doesn't know the things we're going through. I mean, we we think of celebrities as being out of touch with society, right? Me and Andy last night, we were scrolling through something and Gwyneth Paltrow's picture came across and I don't remember what it was, but we started talking about just how out of touch with reality she actually is. I'm not saying you should go investigate her, just she's weirdo. <laughs> she's weird, weird sauce, I'm just saying. It would be hard for us, let's be perfectly honest, if our Messiah was in the way we look and saw him just remotely out of touch with us, right? It would be very difficult. We might worship him as Key, aloof and aloft. We might worship him as holy other. We might see him as an Allah-like figure. This completely distant and not engaged in life here on this earth. So much so that we can only hope that we can achieve to get to his status and get to where he is. But we don't have that in Jesus. He, rather than being aloof, rather than being distant, rather than being distant and weird, has become like us in all the ways that we are like, yet without sin. He came, he pitched his tent, and he dwelt among us. He lived with us. He ate with us. He cried with us. He bled with us. He led us all the way along and in every single aspect of his life, through the thick and through the thin, through the emotion and through the joy, ever and always pointed us towards the Father and pointed us towards God Almighty, who he was himself. Yet as we saw last week, he came to his own and his own received him not. Well, Jesus here, he became flesh. He is, as it were, the very revelation of God. He pitched his tent. Now, Jesus is going to say in John chapter 2, in fact, you can flip over a page with me to John chapter 2. He said that he, verse 18, in response to the Jews' question, well, what are you doing here? Remember, he cleansed the temple. He did it twice in his ministry. Here, once at the beginning of his ministry, and in Matthew chapter 21, 22, he did it at the end of his ministry. But here, what are you doing? And Jesus answered them in verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said then, come on, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? 
Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple, can I say tabernacle, of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, we're going to find this time and time and time and time and time and time and time again as we go through the Gospel of John. Jesus fulfilling all of these Old Testament types and shadows that pointed forward to him. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of those grand and glorious promises that most of the Jews thought were an end in and of themselves. A Messiah was going to come, sure, but the temple's not going to be destroyed. Sacrifices aren't going to stop being offered. The feasts aren't going to stop being celebrated. These things are going to continue on. And yeah, Messiah will come, but he will be the great and glorious object in these things. In that, we're going to continue to celebrate these things. And he's right here along with us. Praise God. But not so. Jesus in the fulfillment, being the fulfillment of these things, gave them their proper meaning and perspective. And that is why these ended. Because those were no longer needed as the revelation of God. Because like we've already said, Jesus is the greatest revelation of God himself. And so Jesus, as the great revelator, as the great revealer of that God that is far vast and far too big for us to comprehend without his own revelation, points us to him, points us to the fact that we can know him and fulfills all of those things that were designed by God to point us to our great mediator, Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Flip to Ezekiel chapter 37 with me. Ezekiel, you know, comes right after Jeremiah there, before the book of Daniel. Ezekiel 37. Let's begin in verse 26. We could go further back, but for time brevity's sake, we'll begin in verse 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them. Them is here he's calling the servant Jacob, but we know from the example of the book of Galatians chapter 6 that the true Israel of God is his elect people. If you have a question about that, I'd love to talk with you more afterwards, but that's not the point of my text here. Just want to point that out though. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them and I will set them in their land and multiply them and I will set up my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Now, as a Jew reading this and understanding Ezekiel 400 years or so before Christ, you would think only that he's speaking of the nation of Israel. But with the coming of Christ, then we see that he has come and made his dwelling place with them. We know from the book of Hebrews 7, 8, 
9, that he is the fulfiller of this great new covenant. And so this dwelling place with man has something a greater fulfillment than a building in an obscure part of the world. Rather, it's Jesus Christ coming and dwelling and pitching his tent with all people. And Israel here, Jacob here, is a representation of all of those people who are God's covenant people. The great object of the covenant has always been for us, for God's people, that he would be our God and we would be his people. That's the great covenant promise. It comes up throughout the entire Old Testament, and it comes up in the New Testament in many places. Even in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, when the new heavens and new earth descend, it says there that God has finally said, I will be their God and they will be my people. There'll be no more tears, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more shame. For old things have passed away, all things have become new. And that's the glorious hope that we have in the second coming of Jesus Christ. That this covenant that he's established with us in his pitching of his tent, in his becoming flesh, is utterly and completely fulfilled in the day of his second coming. So we still do look forward and long for a day of his return, but we sit now in a position of having that covenant relationship with God that the Jews looked forward to and longed for. And we have it because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Just like Ezekiel says. Just like lots of other passages, frankly, say too. But we don't have time to go to them all here tonight. So he became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. This is the first time that word glory, it's the word doxa, appears in the book of John and it's going to come up a lot of times. In fact, one of the most famous places is in John chapter 17 where Jesus is praying to the Father and as he's praying to the Father, he says, Father, I want to be restored to the glory I had with you before I came. And he's longing for, he's looking forward to that time where after his ascension, he's with the Father in his heaven and they are beholding each other's glory once again. This is the first time we see this word glory appearing and it connects the whole book together for us because if there's one thing that we find that is absolutely vital for us about the word, it's he's glorious. He is glorious. Glorious might be a synonym for worthy of our worship, we could say. His glory is one, look what it says, as of the only Son from the Father. His glory, the glory that the tent had, the tabernacle had, the Word had, that became flesh, is the glory as of the only Son from the Father. It's interesting that in Old Testament times, we could go back to the book of Ezekiel, I think, I think it's chapter 10, where that glory of the Lord is there in the temple, but Ezekiel has that great vision of that glory rising up out of the temple, leaving the holy place, going out and down the steps, going down across the book Kidron, there in Jerusalem, up the Mount of Olives, 
up over where the city of Bethany is and off into the horizon as the glory of the Lord leads, leaves the temple because of the rebellious heart of the nation of Israel. That was such a vivid and exacting prophecy that it caused all of the nation of Israel to cease from idolatry, which was the great sin that caused them to be banished and go into exile, right? But this event, as the glory of God leaves, so transforms the people that they look for the glory of God. And one of the things that John says we saw and we beheld in the person of Jesus Christ is the glory of God. That is not throwaway words. John here is not trying to string together a bunch of superlatives to get you super hyped up about Jesus because it's the prologue, right? This isn't, what's it called, the, the thing that you do before a game where you have a pep rally, right? John 1 isn't the pep rally for the book of John. Rah, 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 Jesus, 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 right? That's not what he's doing here. He is certainly setting the stage for you to show you how glorious he is. But the way he's doing it is he's putting Jesus on display as the chiefest and greatest of all human beings that have ever lived. So that as you get into chapter 2, there's not a question in your mind about who John thinks Jesus is. He is God Almighty, the second person of the Trinity, eternally begotten, never created, the only Son, full of the Father's glory, who came from the Father Himself. And the reason He's so glorious, and the reason He's so majestic, is because He displays the very glory that the Father has in heaven here on earth. And John's words that he uses to describe that glory are grace and truth. Grace and truth. Truth is an understandable concept. Truth is something that we all look for and long for in one way, shape, or form. In fact, truth is something that we desire to be a characteristic of us. Let's be honest who likes being called a liar? Anybody? Maybe some weird sociopath, psychopath somewhere. But we call lying a defect when somebody is a habitual liar who is not living in the truth but living in a lie. We have the ninth commandment that tells us not to bear false witness. And of course, by extension, it doesn't mean only in a courtroom, but in every arena and avenue of life. We are to be people of the truth. So it's part of the image of God within us. It's part of that imago day that we have, where we want to be people of truth. It's in all cultures everywhere. It's a very helpful point of connection when we're witnessing with somebody and we're trying to share the Lord with somebody as we want to connect with them the fact that, hey, they desire to be people of the truth as well. In fact, probably we're having this conversation because you do care about the truth and you're concerned about the truth. And that's a good and right thing. It's part of the image of God within you. But our truth is skewed. And it's kind of like one of them uh, wonky carnival mirrors, right? 
that make you look all distorted and funny. There's an element of truth that exists there. I can see in the wonky mirror and acknowledge that I'm still Pat in the wonky mirror, right? But it has misdefined many of my characteristics. I love the one that makes me skinnier, (laughs) makes me taller, but it's an exaggerated picture of myself. And that's the way truth is in the mind of the human, especially the completely fallen human, those who have not been born again. For us who are being sanctified, there is a fixing of the truth, as it were. And all throughout our life, we get a little bit more right and a little bit more uh, picture of the way things really are. And truth is something that Jesus brought and he revealed. And the reason why this is what John says is an aspect of his glory is because this truth is unlike any other truth that exists. This is the truth of God Almighty. The truth of God's own self-revelation. Jesus was able to speak in a way and in a manner that was completely and utterly and rightly accurate in every single aspect. That's something no human being has ever done, is doing, or will ever do apart from Jesus Christ himself. And you see, I'm a little bit down ahead in verse 18. It says, who is at the Father's side? He has made him known. That's the truth, you see, that John is speaking of here. The truth is, Jesus Christ has the ability, because he has dwelt with the God, the God, pardon me, he has dwelt with God and in that Godhead forever and all eternity. So he is the only chief of all beings who has entered into this point in history who is able to reveal to us the truth about God himself. But there's also grace. 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 Grace is a word I love so much. I I hear that word grace and it most of the time stops me in my tracks as I'm reading or listening when somebody mentions this word grace. Unfortunately, in a lot of Christianity, it has become a kind of throwaway word. No, that's not right. No, 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 no. It isn't that. But it's a word that you use to staple some other concept about Christ too. Does that make sense? Talking about something else and you'll have grace kind of tacked on there. But when John talks about the glory of Jesus Christ as the glory from the Father as the Son, he begins with this word grace. Of grace. He's revealed to us his grace and truth. We go all the way back to the beginning, and, and Adam, Adam earned nothing from God. Hosea tells us that that covenant that God made with Adam, don't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, did have a consequence for both good and bad. 
Bad, of course, we understand and we know. But good was that if he had been faithful to that, God would have given him the tree of the life, of life to eat from. The tree that we see at the very end in the book of Revelation that's given to all of God's elect people. But back to Adam. Adam chose to fall into sin and rebel against God. At that moment, the wages of sin is death, right? And yet Adam didn't die. The day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Yet Adam didn't die. Well, we, could, we, we say, well, he did spiritually. And that's absolutely right. He did. He certainly did die spiritually. But I think God was holding the threat of physical death over him as well. Now, is God obligated there in that moment to drop that axe of justice upon Adam's head the moment he fell? No. Because God can exhibit grace. He can and he did in that moment. And in exhibiting grace to Adam, he therefore by extension in what we might call and theologians have called common grace, has given the rest of humanity life and allowed them to continue to exist. Even in the marred forms that we find ourselves, right? Even in these sinful bodies that we roam around in, mucking things up and knocking each other about and causing all manner of pain and suffering and destruction on God's green, blue earth. But it's his grace that has allowed humanity to even continue. Now this grace is revealed in the existence, in the continued existence of humanity, but God did not see fit to just allow humanity to continue to exist, but instead he injected himself in these, like I said, little points all throughout history, showing examples of his grace. And the very first one is he clothed Adam, Adam and Eve when they realized their nakedness. In whatever kind of sacrificial way he took care of that animal, he clothed them. Then we find God coming and seeing all of humanity sinful and saying the thoughts and the intentions of their heart are only evil continually. And that doesn't even take us to chapter 6 in the book of Genesis before we get that commentary on humanity. And so God determines he's going to wipe all of mankind out. And yet, even in that moment, we read these words, Noah found favor, or can I say Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Because although Noah was a man who followed after God, God was not under any obligation to continue to allow him to live either because we know Noah was sinful. He sacrificed. And yet God allowed him to live. God makes a covenant with Abraham and says, out of you I'm going to make a mighty nation of peoples that no one will be able to count. And you know, you've read the story of Abraham. He could be rascally, lying about his wife and those kind of things. And all throughout the history of the world, we see people, even the best of people, Moses and Abraham and David, right? A man after God's own heart. Yet you know the sin that he committed with his life. And yet God showed them grace. 
The reason why grace is something to me that causes me pause is because when I look at my own life, and I don't know about you, maybe you were raised in the church and you were born again when you were three. Praise God. Just so you know, that's my favorite kind of testimony. I love to hear that. For me, I didn't have that. I grew up in a church. Didn't hear the gospel. Wasn't saved. Lived a life of sin and rebellion against the Lord. And I look back and I know there is no business I have being in the kingdom of God, much less being privileged to be able to stand here and preach his word. Apart from God's glorious grace. Ah, good night. I... Pray. My prayer for our church is, as every time I pray, is that we would know Jesus better and love him more when we walk out these doors than when we come in. You hear me say it all the time, but do you understand that what I'm praying there is that you would experience his grace more? That you would just feel that overwhelming just gratitude that you have for God's grace and his goodness. That he would take a rebel sinner like you who suck, and me, who sucks, and he would say, no, 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 no. You are no longer going the direction that you were, but you are now mine. The word became flesh. God Almighty came down and pitched his tent among us so that he might not only reveal God the Father to us, who is full of grace and truth and all of his majestic glory, but his intention and purpose was to come that he might redeem sinners like you and me. Not for your sake, although you get the benefits of that. but for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of his own glory. You see, we are trophies of God's grace. We are examples to, for the rest of the world of God's glory, that he would save us from our sins. And our message to them is not one of, you know, they often call it what, fire and brimstone or hell and damnation or whatever, you know, kind of, pejorative phrase they want to use to, you know, obfuscate from their own responsibility. But the truth of the matter is, is that we have the message for them that grace and truth matters. The truth is, yes, you're a sinner and God is perfectly just, but he's also perfectly good and he's gracious and merciful at the same time. And you, if you would repent of your sins, you turn and believe and trust in him, can and will be saved. You see, this is why John's message matters here in verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, for us, Western Gentile ears, that doesn't have the same punch that it would have for the Jew in that day. Remember Jesus. Well, we're going to get to that in John chapter 10. But Jesus says, Question. How can David call one of his sons Lord when David was first among them? That was a real thorny problem for the Jews because they believed that if somebody came first, they took precedence no matter what. First was primary. First was important. 
That's why Jesus' question packs the punch that it does in John chapter 10, which we'll get to. But here, John is saying that there's somebody who comes after me, who should be in the world's eyes inferior to me, lesser than me, but he is greater than me because he was before me. John's declaring Jesus to be God here. Eternally existent son within the Godhead. Always having this relationship within and amongst the other members of the Trinity. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. And I would add upon grace upon grace upon grace. For from Jesus' fullness we've received grace upon grace. There is no salvation given among men that we might be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. He and he alone. And notice here John says we all have received grace. John is including himself in our categories as well. The law was given through Moses but grace And truth came through Jesus Christ. Now we're going to talk a lot about the law as we go. So I'm not trying to spend a bunch of time here on the law. But just know this, that the law did come through Moses in that he had Moses write down on those tablets of stone in Exodus chapter 31, those laws that the people were supposed to follow. The law was given through Moses, and it is a revelation of God, and it is good and glorious for what it is. But it is not the end, because God gave the law to lead us to Christ, so that we might come to this place of grace and truth that comes through Jesus Christ. God, he dwells in inapproachable light. He is absolutely and completely the chiefest and most glorious of all beings. And Jesus is that one who has made him known to us. Lord, we thank you for your word here. And frankly, Lord, we could go on and on and on about this truth. Well, we will as we go through the whole book of John. I thank you this evening for these words of grace and encouragement that you've given to us, words of truth and words of life, words that not only reveal you, the Father, to us, but reveal you, the Son, to us as well. And we are grateful that your Spirit right now gives us insight and understanding into all of these things and these truths. We pray, Lord, that as we continue with our worship both in song and partaking of communion and in our members meeting, Lord, that you would be in our minds, that your glory would be in our hearts and that we would be focused as much as we possibly can upon you for your glory and your great name's sake. Thank you, Jesus, in your name.